Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. It's already 9 o'clock, so find your seats. Let's get started. Allow me to open in a word of prayer. Pray to the Lord with me. Lord God, we want to hear more from your word so that we can put it into practice. We want to see who you are. We want to see your way, especially when it comes to this topic of communication. So help me to communicate this well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is Lesson 7 in our Sunday School series, Biblical Counseling for Marriage and Parenthood. Before we get to the main lesson today, as is our custom, let's talk about the homework from last week. Last week, you were assigned to read the chapter from Men Counseling Men, Rebuilding a Marriage After Adultery by Wayne Mack, and write down five observations or questions. So, what are some things that you wrote down? Okay. It's fine. Uh, Mark. That's right, yeah, and that's a very important point. The causes of adultery are not external, but internal. You can't say, well, my wife did this, or I was going through this. Those can provoke you in a certain direction, but they never make you do anything. In fact, you will not really have repented of adultery until you've repented of those heart idols. And if you're going to proceed, if you and your wife are going to proceed on the, your, or your spouse, depending on how it might happen in a relationship, if you're going to really proceed in an effective way on rebuilding the marriage, it has to be with an actual uprooting, a full uprooting of the sin of adultery, which means getting to the heart level. Good observation. What else? Oh, Stephanie. Yeah. 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 Uh, Stephanie bringing out that how important it is to get godly counsel versus worldly counsel because it makes a big difference. Yeah, there is wisdom in counsel. That is generally true, but you also want to get wisdom from good counselors, those who actually are mature, those who are wise, and especially those who are believers. I, I did note one section there that maybe was surprising to you when it's talking about confessing the sin of adultery and to whom do you confess that? Well, certainly you confess it to the spouse who has been wronged, but it can include more than that. In fact, the principal is that whoever it substantively touches, that person needs confession from you and needs to see your expressed repentance. And you might say, well, I don't really know who that is. Well, that's a good opportunity to get some counsel, especially from elders. Say, I want to do this the right way, but whom should I speak to? I know it can be a little bit unclear sometimes, so that's definitely a good place where you want godly counsel. Other th uh, questions, observations? Tony? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we can't we can't be unrealistic and say, "Oh, adultery is a sin just like any other sin." Well, yes, that's true in one sense, but it is a uniquely destructive sin in a marriage. It really breaks apart trust. Yet, just as you were saying, Tony, God's forgiving grace and transforming grace is great enough that it is not necessarily the end of a marriage. It need not be. If a husband or a wife who's committed adultery is truly repentant, and if the other spouse is cultivating a heart after God's own, they can rebuild the marriage so that it can even be stronger than before. 
But that does take hard work, and that does take faith. These are good observations. I hope that article was helpful to you. Thank you for reading it. You may have noticed we've had several sobering reading assignments over the last few weeks, and that is important. But I thought with uh, the next week's assignment, oh, say, do you want to say something? That's definitely true. Thank you for mentioning that, Sage. The article focused on men committing adultery, but that doesn't mean that it's not a temptation for women or that women do not commit adultery. That is, that is certainly something to keep in mind. Now, the article was written in a book, Men Counseling Men, so there's a reason why it focused on men. But yes, there are the same things that the article talks about is applicable to the situation of women, where they might say, oh, my, my husband is not caring for me, my my, or maybe my husband has committed adultery, so I'm going to commit adultery against him. So there, definitely, yes, we, we want to be aware of this for both sides. But um, like I was saying, even the principles that were directed towards men in this, in this particular article, they are, they are relevant for both, for both sides of the situation. Though there are unique considerations for each. There might be some things that might tempt men more into adultery that won't tempt women more into adultery, but it's different for a woman. So that's something we could explore another time. But anyways, definitely that's valuable, Sage, to mention that it's not just a problem for men. But like I was saying, we've had several sobering homework assignments, and I thought I'd give you a change of pace with the homework assignment for this upcoming week. Maybe you saw it already if you are on the class list, but here's what I'd like you to do for this next week. It's not a reading assignment. What? Okay, yes, it's a little writing assignment. We're going to do a little how well do you know slash getting to know your spouse writing activity. If you're married or you're engaged or you're dating someone, I'd like you and your significant other to write down two lists. So in total, four lists. And for the first list, I want you to write down 10 specific ways that you would like your significant other to love and serve you. And then for the second list, write down 10 specific ways that you believe your significant other would like to be loved and served. Now, these don't have to be things that the other person is not doing right now. They can be, but they can also be things that the person is not currently doing or that you're not currently doing. And do make the items on the list specific. Don't say or don't write something general like, I want him to show that he cares for me or I want her to show me respect. Be more specific. Write down how your spouse or you could do that. I want him to take out the trash before I have to tell him. Or I want her to bring me her concerns to me without judging me right off the bat. Write things like that down. Once you've completed your two lists, and your significant other has as well, compare them. And I think that will lead to some enlightening discussion, which is the point. Of course, once you have confirmed with your significant other specifically how you would like to love and serve one another, you should start doing those things. You should start doing those things for each other. And be ready to share how the activity goes for you at the beginning of the next class. If you're not currently, if God has not currently placed you in a significant other relationship, you can still do this activity with someone you live with, maybe a parent or a sibling or a roommate, or you can do it with a friend with whom you don't live, but you still have a relationship. And if you don't have any friends, well, your homework assignment is to get to know other people in the church and start becoming a good friend to them so that they might become your good friends. That's your assignment. Questions about the homework? Well, very good.
Oh, yes. A pet? I don't know if you can do this with a pet. The pet won't be able to respond that much, that well to it. So I'd recommend a human at least. Okay. Well, as I said, we're talking about God's design for communication today. His design for how you are to use the different aspects of communication, such as, such as spoken words, written words, facial expressions, body language, and tone of voice to bless others and glorify God. We're going to be focusing on what this design looks like in the marriage relationship specifically, but the principles we discuss will be relevant for all your relationships. What is God's design for communication? I'm going to give you five rules for godly communication from the Bible, but before I do that, I need to give you two critical clarifications regarding communication. And just as a side note, some of the material today, well, the whole class is based off of the pastoral counseling class, the biblical counseling class that I went through in seminary from Dr. John Street. But for this lesson, I've also supplemented it with some information from Dr. Greg Gifford, who is a professor at the Masters University who teaches biblical counseling. He has a podcast called Transformed, where he has several episodes on godly communication, and I've incorporated some of that information into this lesson. And I do recommend that podcast to you, by the way. Pretty much every couple coming in for marriage counseling reports poor communication. Poor communication in their relationship leading to the worsening of marriage problems. Some couples even believe that poor communication is the source. It is the primary source of their problem. And if we could just learn to communicate better, they, they say, I'm sure that all of our issues would get resolved. While I do acknowledge that poor and ungodly communication is a contributor to marriage problems, and that the Bible does make clear God's design for effective and godly communication I must assert to you that poor communication is actually a symptom and not the true cause of marriage problems. In fact, if you do not deal with the true source of your communication difficulties, improving your communication skills may actually worsen the relationship as you both get better at using righteous-sounding words to pursue sinful and idolatrous desires. How can this be? Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37, where we're going to see our two clarifications, two critical clarifications regarding communication. So Matthew 12, 33 to 37, Jesus is in the middle of a, an exchange with the Pharisees. Matthew 12, 33 to 37, Jesus says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So here's the first critical clarification from this passage. Your communication reflects what is happening in your heart. Notice the analogy from Jesus. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. That's basic. No sane fruit tree owner asks himself, why is my good tree producing only rotten fruit? 
No, he doesn't ask that because he knows that bad fruit is just an outward manifestation of a tree's deeper problem. The tree, if it's got rotten fruit, is desperately sick. It's corrupted. It's a bad tree. So it is, Jesus says, with your words, with your communication, and your heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Thus, those who are evil in heart, who are maintaining and nurturing evil in heart, cannot speak what is good. Rather, the good man brings out good words from his heart, like treasure, to put on display, and the evil man brings out evil words from his heart, like treasure, to put on display. Notice, by the way, verse 36 says that this principle applies even to your careless words. The unguarded words you speak with the people with whom you are most comfortable, most familiar, or the communication that just seems to slip out when you're under stress. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you're tired. Like we said earlier, difficult situations and difficult people do not cause you to sin. They do not cause you to speak evil words. Rather, situations and people, to borrow the analogy from Wayne Mack's article, they function like a squeezing hand on the sponge of your heart. And whatever comes out, whatever words come out, is what was already there before you were squeezed. So if you really want to get a sense of where your heart is before the Lord, even in your marriage, don't look at what you communicate in your most careful moments. Like when you're in church, or where you're in front of other people whose respect you want to maintain. Don't look when everything is going well for you and is easy. Well, the words you say then. Instead, look at your most careless, your most private, your most unguarded, your most stressed moments. Even when you're just with family or you're being mistreated. What kind of words come out then? Is it angry words, lying words, perverted words, judgmental words, curse words, insults, complaints, blasphemy, gossip, boasting, bitter sarcasm, the silent treatment? Or do you instead see righteous words, kind words, patient words, forgiving words, edifying communication? Truly, before your words can be transformed to conform to God's design, your heart must be transformed. You must identify and remove by repentance any idolatrous desires, or you'll never say the right words. If you try to transform your communication without transforming your heart, you either will not be successful or you will only succeed in becoming more hypocritical. But if you humble yourself and allow the Lord to transform your heart, by the wonderful truths of his gospel, then I submit you're already 90% of the way there to effective and godly communication. You can even make up for imperfect words if you have the right heart. Because now you're speaking and acting from a heart that's filled with God's selfless love rather than a heart filled with pride and selfish idolatry. So this is the first key clarification, critical clarification. But... We should realize also that the transformation of your heart and words is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Second critical clarification we also see from this passage is number two, 
you are accountable to God for all your communication. Notice verses 36 and 37 again. Jesus says, every careless word, or by extension of the principle, every unguarded bit of communication will require an account to God on the day of judgment. So does that include the tiny put-down you slipped in at the end of one of your arguments? It does. Does that include the way you rolled your eyes when your spouse made a request? It does. Does that include the way you shouted at him when he wouldn't let you talk that one time? It does. All communication that misses the mark of God's own character and commandments deserves judgment. God loves what is good. He hates what is evil. You speak anything that doesn't fit his perfection, he hates it. And we'll call you to account for it. In fact, Jesus says your communication will either lead you to be justified or condemned in the last day. By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Now, does that mean that either on your own or with Jesus' help, you can speak words good enough to get you to heaven? Uh, No, because that would contradict the rest of Scripture. Rather, what did Jesus show us in verses 33 to 35? That communication proves what? Say that, Mike. It proves what's in your heart. It proves where your heart is. Those who have godly communication have what kind of hearts? They have new hearts, transformed hearts, good hearts, hearts made new by Jesus Christ in the new covenant. But those who have evil communication have what kind of hearts? They have stony, evil hearts. They have hearts that are without Jesus Christ and that deserve hell. So as the other scriptures declare, it will be in the last day your words and your deeds that will serve as incontrovertible evidence before the universe as to whether you really believe in and belong to Jesus Christ. And therefore, it will be clear to everyone whether you deserve to be eternally justified or eternally condemned. You see, your communication is no small issue. Your communication is a matter of your eternal soul. If you will not speak God's way, you are showing you don't belong to God. If you will speak God's way, you testify, I do belong to Jesus Christ. He has made me new. He has saved me by his life, death, and resurrection. So you see how important it is that we clarify these things. Before we can talk about what is God's design for communication, we must clarify that communication reflects what is happening in the heart, and you are accountable to God for all your communication. But let's say you have examined your heart according to God's scripture as best you can, and you believe that you are truly seeking Christ, yet you know that you need to keep on improving in knowing Christ and walking with him, and you want to do that in your communication. You know you should do that with your communication. So what is God's standard for communication to which you should keep on striving? Well, now let me give you, let's walk through five rules for godly communication. Five rules for godly communication. And the first one is, this is really important, listen to understand. Listen to understand. If you want to communicate according according to God's design, you must not only purpose to listen to other people, but listen in a particular way. Listen with the goal of understanding the other person. 
to see this. Please take your Bibles and turn to James 1, verses 19 to 20. James 1, 19 to 20. Probably every guide for communication, both in the church and in the world, is going to tell you that before you can learn to be a good speaker, you've got to learn to be a good listener. And listen to how the apostle James articulates this principle in James 1, 19 to 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, you may be aware, in the context before and after these verses, or from the context before and after these verses, James is going to apply this wise exhortation to humbly receiving the preached word of God. That is, you're to be quick to listen to the preached word, slow to speak against it, slow to become angry about it. But the wisdom of these two verses does apply to communication generally and is backed up by the rest of Scripture. If you want to communicate God's way with anyone, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak against what that person said, and slow to become angry about what that person said. Yet what do we mean by listen? Are we simply to allow sound waves to come into our ears? Is that the command from James? No, the idea is that you are quick to listen so that you may fully or at least adequately, understand what the person is trying to communicate to you. Proverbs 18.13 says, we've talked about this verse before, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. I ask you, why is a quick answer folly and shame to a person? Eric. Exactly. You don't fully understand what the person's trying to say or the situation, which means how are you going to respond? In ignorance, in a way that is not helpful or a way that is not accurate, you will respond foolishly, even sinfully, likely making, if there is a bad situation, likely making it worse. In his podcast, Dr. Greg Gifford remarks that bad listeners are some of the angriest people. And you can see how this works. Bad listeners don't take time to understand, meaning they rely most of the time on proud and uncharitable assumptions about other people. That's how they interpret other people's words and actions. And the inevitable result is the bad listener ends up judging other people and becoming irritated by what they do. Obviously, that person was trying to insult me or was disrespecting me or was mistreating me. He doesn't take the time to understand so if you find yourself quick to speak and not quick to listen, to the point of understanding, know that you will become, if you are not already, an angry person. You will fail to follow God's design for communication to your own judgment. Chastening if you belong to Jesus Christ. And by the way, listening to understand is not automatic. Not necessarily. It's something you must purpose to do. There are plenty of other ways that you might choose to listen to someone. Maybe you've even gotten into a habit of doing this. For example, you may listen simply to give someone else a turn to speak, to be polite, to let someone vent or get something off his chest. You're not really listening, though, to understand. You may listen just to hide and hopefully prevent yourself from having to share anything in a conversation. 
You may listen just to calculate how you can segue your next story or next idea into the conversation. Where's a good jumping off point? Uh Okay, here it is. You may even listen just to find a slip up in what the other person says so that like a defense attorney, you can use it to counterattack the other person and win the argument. And this last style of listening particularly trips up married couples and it inflames conflicts. So let me illustrate it with an example and then contrast it with listening to understand. Suppose a wife says to her husband, you never help me with the kids. The husband, listening to counterattack, might say, see, that's not true. I helped feed the kids a week ago and watched them while you took a nap. You're slandering me. Well, that husband may feel like he has spoken the truth and has righteously vindicated himself, but he scores a zero on the listening to understand scale. Not to mention he does nothing to address his wife's concern or show love to her, which is only going to hurt his relationship with her. But contrast this with the husband listening to understand, who realizes that more important than the eloquence or strict accuracy of his wife's words is the intended meaning behind them. Thus, he understands you never help me with the kids to mean... Really, I feel like you do not help me enough with the kids. Or, I'd like more help with the kids. Now, maybe this is something the husband already knows and can readily admit. Yeah, I I should help more. Or maybe this is a surprise to the husband. I, I thought I was already helping enough. I didn't realize this bothered her. But rather than pouncing on the strict inaccuracy or the ungraciousness of the word never that his wife used, a godly husband can... In love, ask his wife further questions about her perspective and her expectations in order to serve her like Christ served the church. Now, maybe as a result of this conversation, the wife will realize she needs to adjust her expectations and acknowledge how her husband is already helping with the kids. But the husband and wife will never get there if one or the other is listening to battle rather than listening to understand. So listen to understand is the first rule of godly communication. The second is speak truth in love. Speak truth in love. As you take time to listen to understand, you will then become equipped, just as Eric was talking about, you will then become equipped to respond rightly, to speak the truth in love as you must. And to see this and the rest of our principles, let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, and we'll start in verses 15 and 16. In Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, Paul is speaking about God's design for mutual ministry in the church, everyone ministering to everyone, to everyone else, and look at how he describes it, starting in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You will notice from these verses that Paul declares one of the main ways that people build up one another in the church is simply by communicating in a certain way. Speaking the truth in love. Now, as a marriage unit is part of the church, 
So husbands and wives must resolve for the sake of building up one another in obedience to Christ to speak the truth and love to one another. Ephesians 4.29 teaches similarly, if you'll just glance down there, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now we can break down this phrase, speak truth in love, into its component parts to emphasize different aspects of this responsibility. Believers, especially in marriage, must first resolve to speak. Some people are more reserved and prefer not to talk much. Many, if recently sinned against by their spouses, may feel inclined to stop talking to their spouses, to give minimal conversation, to functionally withdraw, give the cold shoulder, give the silent treatment. These persons may even cite scripture as justification. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. I'm just trying not to be a fool. I'm just trying to be wise. I'm sorry, that will not do. You are commanded by your Lord to minister by speaking the truth in love and to pursue the edification of your spouse that he or she needs according to each moment. Therefore, if you don't feel like speaking, you must die to yourself and to your own desires and speak as God commanded you for Christ's sake. And remember, your spouse is not a mind reader. Many times your spouse will not understand that there is a problem <laughs> or how they can serve you best until you speak. Don't say, well, if he really loves me, then he'll know without me even telling him. Or if she really loves me, she'll know. You know, sometimes you just need to speak. Second, believers must resolve to speak truth. Speak truth. Now, to speak truth is sometimes taken to mean that believers should speak the Bible or speak the truths of the Bible or they should confront sin. And believers certainly should be doing both of those things. But more basically, to speak truth means to speak what is true. To speak truthfully. Look down at Ephesians 4.25 where we see this concept repeated. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul's argument in that verse is that it does not make sense for Christ's members to lie to one another, to deceive one another, for deceiving the other, to hold back the truth from the other, only hurts the relationship and therefore hurts the body, including the person who is doing the lying and deceiving. You hurt yourself when you don't speak the truth. Believers, therefore, should resolve not just to speak, but to speak the truth. Excuse me. Now, obviously, this means that Christians should not outright lie to each other, to hurt each other, or to cover up their own sins and failures. But this also means that believers should not speak white lies, lies that seem kind or inconsequential. This means that believers should not withhold information that the other person should know. You don't have to share everything, but if it's something that the other person really should know, you are being deceptive if you do not share it with the other person. This means that believers should not imply or insinuate something and then deny doing so. Oh, I didn't say that. This means that believers should not exaggerate to make a situation seem different than it was. And that believers should not recount stories while knowingly omitting certain details that make the speaker look better 
and make another person or people look worse. Of course, speaking the truth is going to be an act of faith, and it may result in trouble for you in the short term. But this is what God's called you to do. This is what honors God, and it will bless you and your relationship in the long term. Well, third, believers must speak the truth in love. Have you ever heard someone say something really unkind and then follow up by saying, I'm just being honest? Unfortunately, Christians can do this too. We can use truthfulness and boldness as an excuse to be harsh. But the truth is, if you speak the truth in an unloving way, you have sinned against God and the other person. And furthermore, just because something is true doesn't mean that you should say it. Consider Ephesians 4.29 again. You are not allowed to say anything that is unwholesome, that is corrupting, that tears down another person, even if what you say is true or you think it's true. You're only allowed to speak, and indeed you must speak, no matter how you feel or how you've been sinned against, that which nourishes, that which builds up, that which shows grace, that which shows love. Indeed, everything, everything you say, every communication with your body language or your eyes or your tone of voice, your words, it must be with the intent to do others good in the name of God. That's what love is. It's seeking another person's good. That's what love does. So, all that together, you see the second rule of godly communication. Speak truth in love. A third rule for godly communication is number three, keep current. Keep current. To conform to God's design, you must keep current in your communication, speaking to your spouse about important matters in a regular and timely fashion. Look at Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 to see this illustrated. Paul writes, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Scripture is realistic. Trouble, anger, conflict, they are an inevitable part of relationships, including the marriage relationship, including the Christian marriage relationship. But something that should mark Christian marriages and Christian relationships in general is that Christians deal with anger quickly and do not let issues that could provoke anger remain unaddressed in the marriage. To do so, verse 27 indicates, would be to give the devil an opportunity. Opportunity to do what? Rich, you're going to say something? Yeah, to further increase sin, to further increase division, to sow bitterness, to ultimately sow the destruction of the relationship. You're giving the devil a foothold. You're giving him an opportunity. Now, how does a Christian deal with anger? Well, he must first confess his anger to God and repent of any idols that are fueling that anger. We've talked about this a little bit. He must then, if he has acted or spoken in anger to, towards another person, he must then seek forgiveness and reconciliation with that person by confessing his sin, by confessing his idols, and, and showing that he's turned from it. Then, and only then, if there's something that the other person said or did that he thinks needs to be addressed as sin or as un healthy to the relationship, 
he must bring it up. Plenty of professing Christians are not willing to follow these steps, especially the last one. Don't want to bring it up. Though there's definitely an important issue, issue bothering one person, he chooses not to bring it up with his spouse. He perhaps tells himself, or she perhaps tells herself, I'm just going to take the high road and overlook it. But this is a serious issue. You cannot, you should not overlook it. Or the conversation is just going to be awkward and painful. So the person chooses to stay safe and comfortable. Or I doubt the conversation is going to be productive. So he's not even willing to try. Just stuff that bothersome issue away. But what happens as a result? It will eventually explode. Or it will fester. It will cultivate bitterness. It will lead to distance in the relationship. The issue that you ignore will keep on coming up, and it will do more and more damage. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, interesting point, Mark. So looking at God and his pattern in the scriptures where we see God get angry, but then he does something about it. He doesn't just stay angry and stew most of the time. Uh, there's a sense where God is being patient with all sinners and, and maybe not acting on his anger in that way, but anger was originally designed as a godly emotion to respond to injustice for the Lord's sake and for others' sake. So there are times where we may have righteous anger, <laughs> but we do need to act on it. That was the intent. But a lot of times we have unrighteous anger, and that anger needs to be dealt with. First, by confessing the anger in our own persons, but if there was an issue that we yielded to and became angry about that is bothersome to the relationship, that is unhealthy, which is ungodly before the Lord, we need to deal with that too, quickly. Jesus tells us that if we have something against a brother, or a brother has something against us, we need to seek peace quickly, even before coming to worship in the church assembly. Matthew 5. God wants you, if there is an issue in a relationship you have with somebody else, to address it before it worsens. How do you address it? By speaking the truth in love. When do you address it? Verse 26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, we are not to take this statement overly, literally. If there's only five minutes to sundown, you don't say, Oh, I've only got five minutes to have this conversation and resolve it with my spouse. No. Reconciliation by the end of the day is a good rule of thumb. But the main idea is you take care of any anger issues or you take care of conflicts quickly. Don't let an important issue slide for days, weeks, months. Not only so that you can prevent bitterness, but also so that you prevent you and anyone else who's involved of forgetting what actually happened. Oh, you did this thing. I don't even remember doing that thing. Now, that being said, we must balance what I just shared with you with 
the general principle of verse 29. Verse 29 says that you are to speak the truth in love according to the needs of the moment with the intent to show grace to the other person. So one application of that in terms of keeping current is that you shouldn't necessarily bring up an issue with another person as soon as possible because maybe that's not the best time to bring it up with the other person. That's not the need of the moment. For example, if your spouse is about to go somewhere or has just returned from somewhere or is tired or is hungry or is sleepy, you should probably bring up your important issue another time. You do well in not wanting to let the sun go down on your anger to want to seek peace in the relationship, but you need to be considerate. And when you are, the conversation, when you do have it, will often go much better. Of course, you can't go too far the other way and wait for the perfect time. Why not? There's never a perfect time, especially when you're trying to confront uh, a thorny issue in your relationship. So then, you must keep current about important issues in the relationship. But realize, this doesn't just apply to negative developments. Have you ever had a friend, a close friend, fail to disclose to you some important good news in his life? Oh, you got engaged? When? Three months ago? Why didn't you tell me? When someone fails you to tell you important good news, what does that do to your relationship? It hurts it, right? It erodes it. You say, oh, I thought we were closer than that. Causes communication to break down. As we've already seen in previous lessons, God made the marriage relationship the most intimate companionship relationship on earth. And companions speak to each other about important matters, both good and bad, positive and negative. If you don't keep current about important developments with your spouse, then when your spouse finally finds out about the information that you've been keeping from him, it will erode, tr erode trust and it will weaken your ability to communicate. You say, well, why are you keeping this from me? Why didn't you share this with me? And let me think that things were different than they were. Therefore, you should feel an internal pressure to keep current with your spouse. As a practical guideline, Dr. Gifford recommends that if something important comes up that is either bothersome or exciting to you, give yourself a 48-hour deadline to share it with your significant other. Within 48 hours, look for a good time and talk about it. Because if you don't have an inner deadline set of some kind, you will delay and delay and delay and delay, and it will hurt your relationship. Keep your communication thriving by speaking regularly and in a timely way what is important with your spouse. A fourth rule for godly communication is attack the problem, not the person. To communicate according to God's design, speak in such a way that helpfully moves towards a solution rather than unhelpfully calls into question another person's character or worth. Consider Ephesians 4.29 again. We Christians are only allowed to speak with one another what builds up, what nourishes, what is helpful to that person's walk with Christ. It is almost never helpful or edifying simply to denounce the other person. Consider the difference between two statements. I don't see how you were telling the truth in what you just said. Versus, I think you are a liar. The first statement if you think about what kind of responses it might generate, it is a little bit confrontational, but it invites explanation and perhaps confession. 
But the second statement is very confrontational, and what does it invite? What would you say, Lydia? Yeah, it is condemnation, and it does invite <laughs> condemnation in return. How dare you speak to me like that? It invites anger, defensiveness, or the other person even to just exit the conversation. Because that's an attack. That is an attack on a person, on his self. That's a strong provocation to him to defend his character, defend his honor, to defend his worth. And he or she will probably feel like you are unjustly, unjustly slandering him or her with that kind of statement. And by the way, if we're honest, we have to admit that statements like you are a liar or you're a tyrant or you're so ungrateful, they generally don't come from a heart of love that seeks to do the other person good with the truth. But from where do these statements come? Anger, hatred, a desire to hurt and punish the other person. It's not going to edify him to denounce him or to denounce her, but it feels good to you. It feels like you're meeting out a little bit of justice. But this is foolish, hateful, insulting, condemnatory, demeaning, condescending communication. It is indeed hurtful and very effective in shutting down communication and exacerbating conflicts. This is part of the corrupting talk that Ephesians 4.29 forbids to believers. You don't want to shut down communication with your spouse. Okay, maybe there's a false teacher out there who deserves words of condemnation. But you have to live with your spouse. You need to speak in a way that's going to be constructive, not dismissive. Ephesians 4.30 says that unedifying talk actually grieves God's very spirit. The very spirit who has mercifully sealed all believers for the day of redemption, that is a merciful act. When you speak in an unmerciful way, you grieve the spirit. So though we believers must keep current and confront important issues, yes, even uncomfortable issues, we cannot do so by angrily attacking the other person. We instead attack the problem. We focus specifically on what a person has said and done rather than on his character. And we give the other person a chance to explain himself and to work with us toward a solution. For example, instead of dismissing the other by saying, you never care what I have to say, you might say, whenever you interrupt me when I'm talking, it comes across as you not caring what I have to say. Or instead of accusing another by saying, you are a narcissist, you might say, honey, I noticed that you seem to get upset and stop talking to me after I disagreed with your opinion at dinner. Could you please tell me why? And by the way, you can probably tell from my examples that the tone of voice and how you say something, it's important in either escalating or de-escalating a conflict. Now, even if you speak in a good tone and good words, the other person may still respond in an in a ungodly way, but you can only do your part. Remember that God made the marriage unit a team. Speak in such a way that shows your partner that you want to work with him or her towards a mutually agreeable solution, even if it involves confronting and repenting of sin. I'm not your enemy. I'm your companion. I want to help you. 
even if it means confronting your sin. Speak in a way that you communicate that. Finally, a fifth rule for godly communication is act, don't react. To communicate according to God's design, you must proactively choose to engage God's way and actively put off, actively put off your natural selfish tendencies. One idea that it runs through most of Ephesians 4, and certainly verses 25 to 32, is the idea of putting off the old natural man and putting on the new supernatural man created in Jesus Christ. In fact, look at Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, does anyone need to teach you how to be bitter or angry or slanderous? No, why not? It comes naturally. It comes naturally in the flesh. And if you are passive in your communication, if you just allow your natural inclinations to reign, your feelings to move you along, when it comes to how people, or how you respond to people who cross you, well, guess how you're going to react? In angry and evil ways. But you are called not to let your natural old ways dominate anymore. Instead, you must, in Christ, purposefully put on a new mode of thinking and a new style of engagement. According to verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, are the responses of verse 32 natural? toward those who would mistreat you or who get in the way of your fleshly desires? Absolutely not. So what must you do? Before you are crossed and mistreated, and when you are crossed and mistreated, you must purpose by faith, by faith in God's power, faith and with God's power, to act godly. You must go against your flesh. You won't feel like doing this, but you must choose to do this. You can't just react the way you always did before in your flesh. You must choose to act in accordance with God's commands. You know, it's worth taking time, even with your spouse's help, to know what your natural tendencies are in communication and conflict. For example, and I feel like I've seen this in every marriage counseling situations I've seen, <laughs> when some people are mistreated, their natural tendency is not to address and work through the issue, but just to stop talking, withdraw, nurse wounds in isolation, saying to themselves, woe is me to live with such an ungodly, unappreciative spouse. When other people are mistreated, their natural tendency is to confront immediately and aggressively, acting like a bulldozer or even a pit bull for Jesus. I will not let this go. I will not have peace until we settle this, even if it takes all night. While there may be a godly seed in part of these responses, they ultimately do not conform to the new man made in the image of Christ. Now, I don't know if it's the husband or the wife who might be one or the other. In all the marriage counseling situations I've seen, it is either the husband or wife is either a natural retreater or a natural bulldozer. But whatever your natural tendencies are, you cannot just allow yourselves to react that way you must act according to God's design, even purposefully going against your natural tendencies. 
The natural retreater must choose to lovingly pursue his sinning spouse. Whereas the natural bulldozer must choose to wait patiently for God's timing for resolution. Want a middle ground between those two stances. That's the biblical place. In summary then, to fulfill God's design for communication, you must remember two critical clarifications. Your communication reflects what is happening in your heart. You must start there. And you are accountable to God for all your communication. And then you must embrace and make habitual God's rules for godly communication. Listen to understand. Speak truth in love. Keep current. Attack the problem, not the person. And act, don't react. Questions about what you've heard today? Yeah, Mark. Good question. What are, if, if the heart is the most important part of communication, what are some ways to cultivate a godly heart? I think we could give a rather large and expansive answer to that. What immediately comes to mind are you must subject yourself to the means of grace. How are we transformed in heart? It ultimately comes from beholding Jesus Christ. So you need to be exposing yourself to the word, not only in your own study, but in the teaching of the word. You need to be praying. You need to be fellowshipping with believers, allowing them to speak into your lives. You need to be serving. These are all things that help cultivate your heart in the proper direction. But the other thing that comes to mind is you need to pay attention to the evidence in your own life, and you need to allow others to speak to the evidence that they see in your life about whether your heart and how your heart is going astray. Because one thing that will prevent you from cultivating a heart after Christ's own is if your heart is already smitten with something else. I've seen this sometimes in counseling where I want to encourage somebody to to find joy in Christ, to entrust themselves to Jesus Christ, and and they just won't seem to do it, can't seem to do it. And so I ask myself, what instead has captured this person's affections? Because until that false lover is unmasked, for being an unsatisfying treasure, for being poisonous to that person's heart and life, it's going to be hard to get that person to see how lovely Jesus Christ is. So those are the two things that come immediately to mind. I'm sure we could say more. Other questions? Yeah, Jody. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Jody, you said a few valuable things there. So, speaking of means of grace, another way that somebody can speak into your life and even help cultivate a heart after God's own is actually to read the words of other Christians. Read um, godly teaching, maybe from the past or from the present. The Puritans are a great source, but you mentioned that they also very purposefully cultivated a lifestyle of repentance, which must be true for every believer. You don't repent once in the beginning or repent every once in a while when you have a big sin, but, you know, some people sometimes talk about you need to keep short accounts with other people. Well, you need to keep short accounts with God, where you are, you become aware that you've you're drifting away from him in a certain area or that you sinned against him in a certain area, you want to confess it and repent to God and realize that this is probably going to be a very frequent occurrence. Now, some people can go so far as to say, well, everything I do is sin. I'm just constantly sinning and constantly needing to repent because I'm sure that I always, I'm, I'm never doing right. I think that's, that's going too far. God has made you a new creation so you actually can do good. But you should expect that a lot of times you're not going to be fully following with God. You're going to need to be sanctified in a, in a new area. So don't be like, oh, I sinned again? What a shock! No, that's actually expected. But you don't just stay there. You don't just say, oh, I sinned again. Well, God forgives me. Thank you, Lord. You say, God, I want to put this to death too. God, wow, I see even more. I need your grace. But you say that you not only forgive, but you empower me to change. So with the power of Jesus Christ, with Christ in me, I'm going to pursue him even more now. If this thing tripped me up, I'm going to get rid of it. So, yeah, it's a, if you are doing that in a characteristic, habitual way, then it will be easier for you to do that with and before your spouse, which is very good for cultivating communication and a strong relationship. One thing I will mention um, it is a, another resource for cultivating communication and relationship if you Google something called Biblical Counseling Conference Table, you will see online some guidelines, some written guidelines as to how you can have, if you haven't had good communication in your relationship in a while, you can set aside a formal time, it could be each day, it could be a couple times a week, it could be weekly, where you just sit and talk for maybe 30 minutes or 45 minutes with your spouse or with a significant other and say, Let's talk through some important things that we otherwise never get to talk about. And the guidelines will show you different rules about that. They have to be, as you conference, it needs to be according to the rules of godly communication that you both know about. And if one of you starts to violate those rules in the, in the conversation, the little guidelines can tell you what to do to allow the conversation to continue to be profitable. But this is a way of building the habit that really should exist in all marriages, which is open communication, regular, deep communication about important things. So if you find that in your relationship or if you're trying to counsel somebody who has a relationship that has very poor communication and it doesn't seem like it's ever getting off the ground, this is a good way to start cultivating that. So that's the Biblical Counseling Conference Table. You can just Google that. Did you have something to say, Mike? Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mike mentioned that with the, uh, the assigned homework in terms of how you can love and serve one another, some of the specific things that you might write down or you might consider is having to do with communication. Is there a way that my wife would like me to communicate? Or is there a way that I would like my wife to communicate to me or my husband? And you can write some of those things down. But of course, Em and I did the homework assignment already and it had an edifying result. We were uh, thinking about, okay, yeah, we are doing certain things that we both want each other to do in terms of loving and serving each other, but hey, there are some new ways that we didn't know about, and I'm glad to do those things. You could, if you have a proud heart, or if you're not following these rules for godly communication, this homework assignment could cause a blow-up in your marriage, but I, I encourage you not to let that happen. Don't be like, oh, I can't believe she wants me to serve in this way, or he wants me to serve in this way. Just say, just listen, seek to understand, and then practice maybe some follow-up questions. The whole idea is cultivating, edifying discussion and leading to the enrichment of your marriage relationship. If you have further questions or comments, please talk to me later in the service. I'm going to be heading home and getting the rest of the family after this, but talk to me later in the service or email me. Next week, we will look at God's design for a marital union, which means we'll be discussing what the Bible has to say about the sexual aspect of marriage and how... So talk about that and also how Christians should think about different types of birth control. So going to be an important lesson next week. Let me close our time today in prayer. Lord God, we want to communicate in a way that reflects your commands, but also you. Lord Jesus, one of the things that you were known for was being a gracious communicator. People were marveling at the gracious words that came from your mouth. You were a very understanding Lord. You didn't keep your disciples in the dark about things you were doing. You say, slaves don't know, but I don't treat you as slaves. I treat you as friends. So I'm going to be open with you. I'm going to disclose myself to you. And he was very patient. Jesus, you were very patient with your disciples even when they said foolish things, when they said inaccurate things, they said sinful things. But Jesus, you didn't respond with sin. You purposed before every conversation and in each conversation to follow the Father's will. Jesus, we want to follow your design. We want to follow your pattern. And you are in us, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit. So we are confident we can do this. But it does mean going against our natural tendencies. It does mean setting aside idolatrous desires. So God, help. Help us to do this. Help husbands and wives to do this. Help those who are not even married, but just want to cultivate and are called to cultivate better communication. Help them to do this in this church. So Lord, that we might honor you and we might see the blessed result of it. Your ways are always good, Lord. Help us to conform to your way. In Jesus' name, amen.